In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. You've heard Mark Hall on our podcast before. Mark Hall he runs the Hunter Conservationist podcast out of Canada. He's almost just like a, an extension of what we do in Canada. His voice, the way that he just, he talks about things, he describes things. He sort of works through the science component of it. We always love talking to Mark and I know a lot of our audience and community love hearing from Mark because it just turns out to be an awesome conversation every time we chat. Today's conversation, I just almost opened it up to Mark to say, well, let's just talk about Canada in general and almost like what do you think is the hottest topic from a hunting community narrative perspective that's happening in Canada? And the topic that we discussed is about First Nations and Indigenous people and a tough conversation because it's so, so complicated and complex in Canada. And Mark does a, a phenomenal job of putting all of the intricate pieces together to sort of lay out all the issues, not all the issues, but highlighting a couple of the big major issues that's happening in Canada right now. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. One of my favorite people to, to talk to 
Mark Hall. Um, I'm sure we won't get into anything controversial in the next 45 minutes or whatever it takes. Well, controversies already happened this morning. What is that? Tell me about it. On your part or my part? Well, <laughs> you're, you're going to end up with it in a couple of days. So when you release your podcast episode with the folks from Herbivorize Predators, yeah, it, yeah, it's you, it, your social media is going to light up. So Curtis and I did a podcast for the Hunters Underground podcast, which is on our patron platform. And we just sort of dug in and analyzed and provided our thoughts on their their movement and that went live this morning and my my messages are just lit up it's like people are like this is the stupidest thing i've ever heard of and then they go on and on and on with all these posts why they're upset about it and i'm like well i'm glad you're engaged but yeah yeah no there are it's a very interesting movement, and we actually, uh, almost 30 minutes ago, actually locked them down. So we're going to be recording that episode. And really, you know, from my perspective, I'm just, I've actually just got a laundry list of questions. Yep. Now, I'm not going to take a position. Naturally, everyone knows my position, <laughs> but I'm not going to take a position. I'm just going to ask them hard questions, and let's hear their answers. And people can then react to you know what they say yeah no absolutely i think one of the biggest questions uh curtis and i had was they're focusing on sentient beings so start digging into the definition of sentient was basically the organisms that could feel pain and suffer and they could differentiate between positive and negative experiences and so you know oysters and bugs and all of that don't make the list for sentience. So I was kind of wondering, well, like, why is that the cutoff if part of their platform or, or their <laughs> mission is, is ending untimely death in the animal world? And it's like, well, why does a grasshopper that meets an untimely demise to a wild turkey um, not, not cut it? Yeah, the untimely suffering uh, or untimely death component is actually, you know, a, a fascinating idea because if you had to play out their idea of turning everyone into herbivores, you're more than likely going to elevate and escalate and accelerate sort of mass dials <laughs> based on resource fluctuations. And is that not an untimely death? that you're almost perpetuating a sort of a boom-bust cycle that is inherent to Mother Nature, but you're purposely like forcing more of a boom-and-bust type cycle by putting more herbivores into that sort of trophic echelon. No, that's, that's... They essentially just say that predators, they want to remove the trophic level that is predators. Yeah, yeah, the secondary consumers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh well, interesting. So, I just, I just want to know what the plan I, is for polar bears. Polar bears, or uh, the other one is that came up quite often is birds of prey. Well, they can <laughs> they, see they can fly, so they could like swoop down and nab your broccoli, your salad. Like hey, you won't know what hit you. Like they just pow, and it's ah <laughs> oh, my apple, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's going to be like I'm going to just have to control myself. Oh, it, well, it's Mark fun. Hall, uh, for those that Mark Hall, those that don't know you, who you are, uh, brief introduction, please. So I am the host of the Hunter Conservationist podcast in Canada. Uh, it's a show that's dedicated to wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. I do that with my son, Curtis, the co-host. And I also host a, another podcast called the Round Canada podcast. You have the Roundup. I have the Round Canada podcast, which is kind of trending stories and op-eds and uh, from stories around the Canada uh, on basically that same theme, wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting, and just keeping people up to date on their, the news in the country. That's me. Don't you have another, don't you, you have a bunch of other podcasts. Yes, we do. We have a patron program (laughs) and we have the Hunters Underground podcast, which is just Curtis and I musing about different things. And I also launched uh, on our patron platform this year, a podcast called The Hunting Diary. Diary. Yeah. And you know, that that's been a really fun journey because that's just me out hunting by myself. And for my whole entire life, I've spent most of my time hunting by myself. And I have these immense conversations and these immense thoughts about everything from my place in the world and what I'm doing. And I'm looking for a buck, but oh my God, what are all, what's that huge flock of chickadees doing over there under that tree? And so I just decided to take my recorder with me in the field and bring these thoughts in my head mm-hmm. and my fears and 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 what I love and and stuff and and talk to people while I'm out there like you're with me experiencing this mm-hmm. and uh it's like old-fashioned radio so I have to say like I'm you know I'm down at the wetland I'm with my puppy dogs the sun's coming up over the rocky mountain like I have to make sure people can can see you know like they're there uh but then just mm-hmm basically talk out loud and it's a great journey uh i love it it's very different than the other podcasts and cool i love it i love it no i i I exceptionally love what you do obviously you're almost like a um you're almost like a i don't even i don't know how to how to even say it an extension of what we do at blood origins in canada but like just like canada specific and um we need more of that kind of stuff anywhere in the world, so love it. No. Thank you. All right, so today we set this up because we just wanted to almost like just deep dive in what is happening in Canada. Yes. We wanted to just have just a general like, hey, this is Canada. This is some of the hunting issues that are happening in Canada, and we're going to freeform this. I actually... Uh, have no idea what you want to say or what you want to talk about. And um, I'm sure, it, you know, I don't know if we've beaten the C, C, you know, C-21 horse uh, enough, but um, probably have, yeah, but we can absolutely. touch on that a little bit. Yeah. And grizzlies in British Columbia and you name it. Where do you want to start? Well, um, so I'll, I'll start with a, a quote to preface everything that I'm, I'm going to say, uh, and it's from Mark Twain, and he was quoted as saying, all generalizations are false, including this one. So I'm one person. All generalizations are false, including this one. Yes. Yeah, look, 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 look it up. 
I'm intrigued. So, so what, what that means is I'm one person. Uh, I live in one part of Canada. I do spend a tremendous amount of my time um, digging into issues and trying to learn uh, uh, everything that's going on in this country, uh, from the Arctic to, you know, the, the East Coast Maritimes to fish to s- salmon to migratory birds to the different hunting cultures and, and everything. So I, I'm trying to learn. Um, I'm not all seeing, I'm not all knowledgeable of, of hunting and issues in every part of the, of the country. I try to think about them logically and analytically and, um, and have a lot of guests to explain things. So kind of the, the, the things that I want to talk about in Canada are, you know, they're generalizations and people are probably going to say, well, that's kind of not the way it is in Ontario. And they're probably right. Um, so mm-hmm. Speaking of controversy, I think the, the place that I'd like to dive into in Canada of an issue is one that I hear on the minds of hunters all over this country, and it's one that is very, very difficult to talk about, and it's very difficult for the media to talk about. They won't touch it. It's very difficult for individuals to talk about it. and it's yet you're going to bring it to my I'm, podcast. I'm going to bring it to your podcast <laughs> and and I've already prefaced it with the with that statement of Mark Twain's that whatever I say is yeah, yeah, yeah. is already wrong um but it's it's the topic of first nations rights and title in this country and mm. where that overlaps with wildlife wildlife management who gets to hunt, who gets to hunt first, what are the allocations, and how does that fit into conservation? And th- this, is, this is an incredibly sensitive topic. It's an incredibly complex topic. Uh, it's, you know, involves um, treaty rights that go back to the 1800s, uh, federally, provincially. It's Supreme Court cases and decisions that have forced governments to do things that they had abdicated under treaty rights and stuff. And um, yeah, so so, that- so let me ask this question, maybe to set the scene here. Um, I think a lot of people, obviously, our American audience here understands of the Indian reservation type component, which is they're almost a sovereign nation in which they have their own laws. They do what, you know, essentially what they please. Um, how is the fir- are the First Nations set up the same way in Canada? Do they have, how are they structured in relation to the federal government? Right. So across Canada, there are, um, nations, First Nations. So it, it's a little bit okay. complex in Canada in that uh, legally First Nations are recognized by the government. They actually have rights that are affirmed uh, in the constitution when it comes to hunting. Then we have Inuit in the far north, which okay. are not classified as First Nations. They don't have constitutional rights uh for hunting and, okay. and and fishing and then metis and metis what is metis metis are the people in canada that are part european and part first nations 
Okay. And they are, and this gets into some really complex stuff, but a First Nations individual may have European ancestry in their family history, and they are recognized uh, by the federal government as being First Nations, and they have yeah, rights. Yeah. But if it is the other way around, it's European with First Nations in their family, then the federal government does not recognize them as having the same uh-huh. rights. It, it's, it's weird. Interesting. Uh, so that makes... Yeah, because here in the United States, any, any sort of Native American lineage, regardless of where it comes into your tree, you're still afford the, those, if there are any rights, if there are any yep. you know, federal government related uh, I, you know, items to that uh, Native American tribe, you would still get them. Yes, yes. So there, there, those, those groups of people are all enveloped under the, 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 um, I guess the, the name of indigenous peoples, uh, and then indigenous peoples in Canada are broken out to first nations, Métis and the Inuit. And do they have, they've been allocated land? Um, so, like this is so their again, land. This is, this is very complex. Was so, this crown land. So yeah, there's yeah. about 650, I think, recognized First Nations across the country. Okay. They have what's called territories. So it was like their historical geopolitical boundaries before the European settlers uh, arrived. And in order to reestablish the territories of sometimes it's referred to as traditional territories have also been told as just territories because it is today it's not historical it's what they they claim today uh some of the some of the nation's territories overlap um so this gets complex in you know making decisions and and having um getting consent of nations a lot of those territory boundaries were established by you know, uh, projects of oral history of elders, uh, archaeological sites that kind of placed people in certain uh, time frames of land and resource use and occupation. And so all of these different things overlaid to kind of say, like, this is the territory of this nation, but this nation kind of came into it. And so, so they have their nations. Then some of the nations in Canada have treaties with the federal government. Some have treaties with provincial governments. Some First Nations live on reserve lands or First Nation lands that were established under the Federal Indian Act, uh, and people were, were moved off their territories and housing projects and put on reserve lands where they have certain bundles of rights on the reserve, then pr- through treaty and through the constitution, they have rights and title off the reserve land within their territories. <laughs> so the, and then there's another concept um, of ceded and unceded lands within their territories. So some nations that signed either historical treaties or modern treaties have kind of consented under the treaty to say, these are our lands now, um, and they're ours. We have self-governance on these lands, and we manage everything. 
in British Columbia, the first modern treaty that was signed with was the Nisga people in northern BC, and they were given a large block of land, not nearly as large as their traditional territory, but it is Nisga lands. They have their own government, mm-hmm. they have their own elected officials, they manage forestry, mm-hmm. fisheries, wildlife, hunting. It's theirs. It's essentially like private land. So, um, yeah, it, the, it's complex. So, to, to the next question, when the government makes decisions around hunting, let's just use British Columbia as an example, they, use a, they banned grizzly bear hunting. Does that law apply to the Nisga people on their land? No. In fact, it doesn't apply to any First Nations peoples in the province because their right to hunt is protected or is affirmed by Section 35 of the Constitution. So they are free to hunt grizzly bears, and some nations' um, members still do. Uh, and, and again, this is complex in the sense that there are different, there's just under 300 nations in British Columbia. They don't all have the same history. They don't have the same values. They don't have the same indigenous laws. So there are nations on the coast that did not view grizzly bear hunting as something that should happen in their territory. And then there were nations elsewhere in the province in the north that said, yes, we actually have a culture around hunting these bears and managing their populations and, you know, and, and the guide outfitting business that nation members have and, you know, that, those sorts of things. So, so positions on that vary uh, based on the nation, but they are allowed to hunt for food, social, and ceremonial purposes. That's a right that's protected both by some treaties and by the Constitution. So. Hmm. So then let's move to a different example because that seems pretty clear cut. And honestly, that's a quite a surprise to me. I didn't realize that grizzly bears could still be hunted in British Columbia, period, number one. Um, and it sounded like if they, you know, you know, it's gray enough that if there was an indigenous individual who was an outfitter in those areas, he could still sell a grizzly bear hunt and you could still go and hunt yeah, a grizzly so bear that in was, those places. That, was, uh, that came up very early after the grizzly bear hunt ban decision by the government and the Nizhga people um, were upset by that. A lot of nations, especially in northern British Columbia, were upset by it because of the outfitting industry, the revenue that comes into the community community members that uh, worked for guides uh, or worked as guides and nation members that actually owned the outfitted territory themselves. So that was an economic Im- impact to many um, northern communities. Yeah, but, if it hap- but if it was in the territory, it shouldn't have been impacted. So, so again, this is where it gets complex. So they have certain mm. bundles of rights under treaties and under the constitution but the federal government and provincial governments still have the right to kind of take some of those rights away for purposes of safety and for um, conservation. So it, it's, it's kind of like so their rights that they rights. could be taken away. So, so their <laughs> right 
<laughs> like operating. So that at, makes no sense. How can it be someone's uh, rights I, that they can I, be taken away? I, I know. And so, so what happened with the case of the grizzly bears? So the the outfitters who were indigenous, they're operating a business that is governed by the Wildlife Act. They're issued a tenure by the province. So the fact that they're indigenous uh, as an outfitter, it it kind of doesn't matter in the sense that they're still bound by the same laws as a non-Indigenous guide outfitter. So they had said, like, it is our right to continue to operate and guide grizzly bears on Nizhga lands, and we're going to sell hunts. And if I remember this rightly, it's kind of like they could do that. But the second that the hunting client stepped off Nizhga lands with a grizzly bear in his or her possession or tried to export it, the province would be there to arrest that individual and, and confiscate the grizzly bear. So that basically no hunter was, was going to say, well, I'm going to go on a guided grizzly bear hunt in the Nizhga, on the Nizhga lands with the Nizhga people um, because they would never, never be able to lead with it. So Again, this is, it's so complex and that's why, you know, these things are in the courts. They are um, controversial. Hunters uh, on the ground get kind of like um, caught up in um, conflict with Indigenous peoples. And we've seen blockades um, across the country. We've seen court challenges over um, who should have the right to hunt the moose first. Um, that's going on in Ontario. Uh, indigenous nations there are challenging the government on their tag, moose tag allocation process, saying you're violating our rights by giving out non-Indigenous per- moose permits before we've had a chance to harvest the moose that we need. And so yeah. that's, you know, that is a case that is before the courts um what about the whole uh i remember last year that it it, it, sort of the first nations um element was brought into effect which was the whole caribou Mm. wolf management yep Yep. forestry logging (laughs) oil and gas developments yeah so that one that one is literally a story that's unfolding uh again in the last sort of 20 24 to 48 hours here in british columbia so just to fill people in on that um about seven years ago um the blueberry river first nations in northern british columbia took the provincial government to court um and it was filed under chief yehi of the blueberry river first nation and they were basically saying that their treaty rights, the rights to hunt and fish and use the land in peace, was violated by the provincial government because of their continued approvals and development of forestry, mining, and oil and gas development and exploration in their territory without taking into consideration the cumulative impacts of decades and decades of approvals on top approvals on top of approvals kind of thing. And just just to but we're assuming they're making these decisions on that sort of gray land right that it's not yes you have rights over the land but you don't own the land yes yeah so that that would be those would be decisions and developments that 
were happening in the territory of the Blueberry River First Nations. So interestingly enough, this is where it gets more complex. The reserve land is actually federally controlled, but the territory that's on crown land of the province is controlled by the province. So um, what can and can happen on reserve versus crown land within the territory is two different levels of government. So you can understand the frustrations of Indigenous people and working with governments. So uh, do, the, do the Indigenous people in that, in that scenario, the Blueberry Nation, do they actually own any land? I, I believe they own like some land, like some, some fee simple, um, like ranches, uh, and stuff, um, okay. that are, you know, operated as, as, um, you know, uh, ranch operations or whatnot. But so the reserve land is kind of like, in a way it's almost like private land. Um, but it has some federal laws, okay. um, you know, on it, like the criminal code applies, um, those, those okay. sorts of things. So, so in, in. The, the, the Blueberry River First Nations took the province to court and said, your, your development has, has chopped up our land like so much. I think in the court decision, the judge had said that within the Blueberry River First Nations territory, you only had to walk 700 meters and you would hit some kind of infrastructure from forestry, oil and gas development or mining. Huh. Um, so, so in, in that, that, court challenge, um, a Supreme Court judge in BC ruled in favor. It came out about a year ago. It was called the Yehi decision. And the decision said, yes, the province impacted their treaty rights by not taking cumulative effects of all of these decisions, resource decisions into effect. Then this is just kind of the way it works. And, and you know this as well. The courts make a decision then governments are, are, and, and corporations are like, what the heck does that mean? How do we go forward and do our business? And so they're trying to interpret it, and government lawyers are pouring over it, trying to figure out what <laughs> it means, because um, they're basically said you're guilty of violating a contract, basically, <laughs> with these nations. So then the province of British Columbia last summer came out with an announcement and said, because we were sort of found guilty of violating treaty rights uh, in the Yehi decision. We're going to fix this by reducing moose and caribou hunting for non-Indigenous residents of British Columbia. And it was a massive cut. It was about 50% reduction in the moose harvest in an area of BC that has the highest density and the healthiest moose populations in the entire province, <laughs> the complete closure <laughs> of caribou hunting, and that the, the reduction in moose hunting, uh, I think the BC Wildlife Federation estimated that it would, that it would affect about 3,000 people in the province that hunted or benefited from those tags. And that was, of course, super controversial with resident hunters, sure. and they basically started to blame First Nations, um, saying that this was like a, a I, I hate these, these words, but like closed-door deals, backroom deals, these sorts of things. And then many of the nations started to publicly come out and say, no, we did not ask for this. We want to fix the land. We want to be able to hunt and fish and, and restore 
um, seismic lines and forestry roads and, you know, and try to get back to a land that, that you know, our, our people uh, have been on for generations. And so this whole, you know, it, it was like indigenous hunters and non-indigenous hunters or the uh, indigenous nations, kind of this, this conflict ensued. Uh, we had horrible, horrible things happening, like death threats being issued to the current chief of the Blueberry River First Nations. And, and like I said, some of the nations came out and said, no, this is not what we asked for. Um, you know, this affects our community. It affects tourism. Um, we're, that's not what we we're asking for. But the government went ahead and imposed it anyways. So it, it created a tremendous amount of conflict created a tremendous amount of animosity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, which really, really bothers me um, because, Eh. you know, we've seen horrible things happen around the world and conflicts and blockades and and those sorts of things. And I just, I just don't want anything like that to happen, you know, in Canada Mm -hmm. over who who Mm -hmm. gets to hunt or who has access to the land. So right now that is almost just as an impasse, I assume. Yeah, like, you know, of course the government brings in a decision like that and then said, hey, it's just, it's, it's an interim measure and then we're going to reassess in, you know, in, in two years. So I, I think that's always... So the resident quota has been chopped for this coming year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's uh... How does that, did that affect the First Nations? Um... Did, how did that affect them? Because you would assume they would be hunting and potentially taking residence, guiding, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so, so the guide outfitters' quotas um, were also reduced, um, massively reduced. There was, if I remember the numbers right, there was something like 130 or 80 or 90 or something outfitters in that whole entire corner of the province. Some of them were actually... The outfitters were um, were indigenous, and their allocation was something like forty five moose permits, and they were going to have to figure out amongst themselves which ones got a permit and which ones didn't, um, and mm. and not have moose hunting clients. So again, you know, there would be a lot of um, guides from indigenous communities that worked for the outfitters that probably had less work sure. because of less moose hunting clients, and. In the far north, First Nations communities, you know, are are one and the same of communities where non-Indigenous people live, and they work together, and they go to school together, and they're close-knit small communities. And so then, you know, one group has something, and the other group doesn't have something. And, um, you know, of course, nobody, you know, wanted that type of atmosphere in their communities up north, but, you know, it did, it did create... <laughs> you know, divisions and, and animosity and, and whatnot. Now, one of the interesting parts about this whole story is just late last week, the province of BC made an announcement that had reached an agreement with the Blueberry River First Nations and the other nations in northeastern BC on how they're going to proceed to address the Yehi decision being the impacts to the land itself. Um, and there's like a big um, new programs and tens of millions of dollars for ecological restoration projects, um, you know, are going to take place 
under this new agreement. Part of what I'm seeing and hearing that is part of the really prickly and sensitive part of this issue is potentially the eventual movement of First Nations giving the rights to completely manage wildlife and hunting and the allocation or even the access to the land itself. There are nations here in British Columbia that are pushing for co-government models. So we would have two governments that would both have to agree to a decision being hunting seasons, allocation, open areas, closed areas. Um, And there are nations that are wanting exclusive rights full autonomy for wildlife stewardship and management and nobody knows what that looks like and so that creates a tremendous amount of uh, fear in the non-indigenous hunting community thinking that potentially someday they could be excluded from large areas of the province uh, or or the country and not be allowed to hunt at all so it's it's a yeah, like I said, it's it's a sensitive issue. It's a complex issue. Uh, it is one that I do hear a lot from, you know, hunters uh, and the full spectrum of opinions, uh, some of them which, you know, I'm not overly supportive of the way people articulate themselves about this issue. Uh, and then other people that are just sort of like, you know, concerned for wildlife populations and conservation. How can we conserve wildlife species if we're regulating the non-indigenous harvest, we're counting wildlife, we're reporting hunter harvest, but then we have indigenous people who are harvesting for sustenance purposes, and we have no idea on how many they're taking. Here, here. Like how, how do we... Yeah, but the thing is, the argument there is, and again, obviously modern society is changing this dynamic slightly, or majorly, depending on where you are in the world. But there is a rhetoric that is that the indigenous peoples of the land understand wildlife better than Mm -hmm. most, if not anyone. And they know how to regulate that wildlife management. They know how much to take. They don't take more than they need. They're not going in and, and wanting killing, you know, as much as possible because that goes against their ethos. Um, yet again, we've also all seen videos of potentially, you know, that don't look very good when, you know, take a lot of animals out. But again, we don't see the back end of that in terms of the utilization of the animal. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, certainly consternation, but there's always that element to, to be considered. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's... I, uh, a co-worker years ago told, told me this saying, and it's always stuck with me. He said, perception is reality. And no matter what you're dealing mm-hmm. with, if people have a perception of something, that's the real world and you need to deal with that perception. Uh, and when it comes to indigenous rights to hunt um, that supersede non-indigenous hunters, um, different times of the year, amount of animals that can be taken, males, females, uh, you know, those sorts of things, Uh, salmon, you know, all of these types of things, 
there are perceptions out there and those perceptions lead to biases. They lead to conflicts. They lead to some really horrible things that I've heard about that have happened at road blockades and, uh, you know, and protests and these sorts of things. And so the perceptions of what's happening across the country, I think we have to, cons- we have to say that that's real. People really believe these things and we need to work together, you know, to bring facts to the matter, to bring truth and, you know, reality to, to this so that pe- people can understand. One of the things I had a, had a look at in preparation of this show was, well, how many Indigenous hunters are there in Canada? So there's, I think it was a 2021 census, there's around 1.8 million First Nations people in Canada. Almost half of them now live off the reservation lands. They've moved to the urban areas. And yeah. of that 50% of the population, I think only one in three have engaged in some sort of hunting or gathering, food gathering type activity on the land. So kind of trying to do the math, maybe around 350,000 total people in Canada between Inuit, Métis, and First Nations that are hunting off the land. There's, it fluctuates in Canada between 1.3 and 2 million non-Indigenous hunters. So, you know, the, the numbers of hunters, non-Indigenous hunters out, outnumber. So logic would have to say that's where the bulk of the harvest is. And, and, you know, the Indigenous right. harvest would be much less. So it, you know, from a conservation perspective, maybe, you know, that harvest level is, is not that significant that we don't know exactly what it is, or maybe it is. And, and that's a part I, I don't know. Um, but I do hear from some people that say, man, it's just like, it, it's too much. You know, the moose can't sustain this, uh, or the caribou herds can't sustain unregulated hunting, and we should have the same rules, you know, for everybody. And uh, th- these are the things, man, scenario. people just don't don't tend to talk Super openly about. Yeah. What about, again, maybe I'm, I misheard this, but what about, wasn't there a wolf-caribou issue with First Nations as well in terms of not being able to take wolves or wanting to take wolves to ensure that caribou populations increased? I, I might be c- thinking about something completely different, but I thought that was tied to First Nations as well. There are, there are some of the endangered caribou uh, in north, northeastern British Columbia that indigenous communities, indigenous nations are sort of leading the conservation effort on. They have maternal penning programs. Um, they are, their nation members are involved in wolf control on the ground and they're also like endorsing and consenting to the government led wolf helicopter shooting uh, control program. (laughs) So, (laughs) so there, there's, there's that going on. There are other nations in Northern British Columbia that are not dealing with populations of endangered caribou, but they're dealing with downturns of moose and caribou that are not part of the endangered uh, caribou subspecies. But they're saying our grizzly bear populations are too high. Our wolf populations are too high. Uh, we need to have the grizzly hunt back 
Um, we would welcome people to come and hunt grizzly bears in our territory. And we need to get out on the land and start controlling wolf populations mm-hmm. like we've done um, since time immemorial. And, uh, you know, that's, they're, they're trying to exercise their rights. And of course, that's <clears throat> landing on a society that's trying to be sensitive to the history and persecution of Indigenous peoples in this country, blended with animal rights where, no, we shouldn't be killing, you know, predators for, for, uh, for ungulate population management. And that's a real conundrum for, for some parts of, of um, Canadian society as well. Yeah, I think it's that's that's the element that I had in my brain of the First Nations almost interacting with the the non-consumptive views side of society, right? It wasn't a conflict with the government, it wasn't a conflict with resident hunters. It was like this no, you can't you can't manage these animals because we think they're, you know, cute and fluffy and furry and very very much so. Um a number of years ago when sort of the wolf call campaign got ramped up internationally that, uh, you know, there was a famous pop singer down in the United States kind of got onto social media. She made a trip up here to British Columbia talking about Save the Wolves and stuff. And the president of the Tolten central government, whose territory, people's territory covers 11% of the entire province of BC, had some very profound advice on where to go so (laughs) you know and there are you know and and this this is it it is hard to talk about this because i don't want to come off as like uh you know being one way and uh you know not another way um i i think the future of wildlife management in british columbia and in a lot of places in canada is going to look very different in the next five ten and twenty five years very different from from what we see now. Um, There are nations in this country that want to collaborate and work together with the non-Indigenous communities in partnerships. They want their traditional ways of life back. They want to have an outfitting business. They want to have the economies around non-residents coming in to hunt on their lands. They want to have greater say and how wildlife are managed because their own people depend on on hunting and fishing and trapping and so there you know the ideas of co-management co-stewardship um joint decision making there is the opportunity i think for some models that are going to forge a path that's better than what we have right now because uh i'll be honest, uh, our governments, both provincially and federally, in a lot of cases in this country, are not doing a good job of looking after the land or wildlife. So in that, there could be a lot of different submodels fall out of that, being there could be small and large tracts of land in this country that are no longer accessible to non-Indigenous hunters uh, because they're hmm. um, hunting for indigenous peoples in a particular valley or a region or something may just be so important to them uh, and the history and culture of their people that they just won't allow or approve of or consent to having other hunters there. And, and that, that could happen as well. So, so I, I don't see it as like, you know, an either or thing. I see the future in this country 
potentially being a whole bunch of different models uh, for wildlife management and hunting and allocation of hunting rights, you know, that are that are going to fall out almost on a nation by nation basis. So, hey, hey. but like I yeah, said, it's interesting. It concerns the non-indigenous hunting community. I hear a lot of you know about that, uh, and it's based in fear of losing, losing the Is opportunities. Is the non-indigenous to hunt. hunting community in Canada engaging? The First Nations at all? Are they organizations that are engaging yes. on behalf of the non-Indigenous hunters? Yes. So, you know, each of the provinces have their um, provincial level hunting fed- federations and association, Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, the BC Wildlife Federation, the Manitoba Wildlife Federation. They all have very strong Indigenous relation portfolios. Um, and work with, engage, meet with, um, try to pull together partnership projects on, uh, there's one just recently meetings happening close to me last week between the BC Wildlife Federation and First Nations in my area, um, looking to collaborate on wildlife habitat enhancement burns in the Rocky Mountain region. So yes, there are are good things happening. And it's one of the reasons why I always advocate that if you are a hunter in this country, uh, if you want to do something for the future of hunting in Canada and for wildlife conservation, make sure that you belong to your provincial, you know, hunting federation because they're engaging government, they're engaging First Nations on these sorts of things. And um, so, yes, that, that is, that is happening. The, you know, that the issue that, concerns me the most is what's happening outside of those forums it's the people that um that don't have good attitudes about the future that are you know for the better word of it racist towards indigenous people and their rights to hunt um that that still happens out there there are indigenous nations that have very aggressive like chief and councils that want very protective policies and laws on their lands. And there are cases across the country where they simply want non-Indigenous resident hunters out of their territory. They just think there's not enough moose or there's too many people around. Their hunters are saying, oh my God, I went out and it was like, there's pickup trucks everywhere. How am I supposed to find a moose (laughs) for my family? And we've seen blockades. And we've seen conflicts <laughs> in the bush at the start of hunting season. <laughs> and yeah, like I said at the beginning, that just that deeply, deeply troubles me when these things reach the point where it's the average person on the ground with firearms that are confronting and yelling at each other. You know, um, it's just, God, I just don't want our country to ever have something like that happen. <laughs> No, it's a it's a tough situation, man. It's a real tough situation. Um and I think you're right. I think First Nations is it's always delicate, right? No matter where you are in the world, whether you're talking about Aboriginals in Australia, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Native Americans, it's always a very, very, very sensitive subject. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things uh, you know, I wanna, you know, advocate to folks listening and, and especially the Canadians is 
it's not indigenous people's responsibility to educate us about their history, their culture, uh, what they need, what they're asking for. They do do a tremendous amount of that, but we have to do more of the heavy lifting to understand. And that to me is the first part of all of this is simply understanding the issues, where they're coming from, rights and title, um, you know, cultural norms and values, uh, indigenous laws. Uh, you know, every nation had their own set of laws. They had their own management regimes. They were very actively managing wildlife and the environment and, and manipulating it actually for, you know, for their, their benefit, like, you know, the clam beds uh, in, in the ocean. Fascinating, fascinating uh, yeah, yeah. In, in farming, you know, clams. And the technology goes back tens of thousands of years. So it's like, you know, one, educate yourself uh, on these sorts of things and, and be proactive, belong to members that are working on, you know, organizations that are working on, on your behalf. And if you are at a local level, I mean, reach out to local First Nations, uh, have a good friend in, um, uh, lives in Vancouver and he has like a, a, a hunting brand called, uh, Eat Wild. And his name is his name is Dylan, and when he travels in the province to go on various hunting trips, he stops in at the community's First Nations offices and band offices and said, "I might here's here's who I am. This is you know where I'm going. Uh, is there anything you want me to know about um, certain rules and stuff?" And yeah. he's one of the people I know of that when they come out, he'll stop back and say. Hey, we were really fortunate and we got a moose and, you know, does somebody in the community need to hide and would you like, uh, you know, a quarter of, of meat? And I, mm-hmm. I've heard many mm-hmm. stories of people, individual people doing that within the communities and, and that goes a long way. Well, it's to... the same thing you do with private lands, right? If you go and <laughs> knock on someone's door, <clears throat> you say to them, Hey, how can I help you? Can I? clean the pig shit out of the sty, you know, to get hunting access and whatnot. And when you do get hunting access, after a couple of times, you're probably bringing them a baked pie, you're bringing (laughs) them, you know, jerky to say thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, so that recognition and acknowledgement uh, can be very, very helpful, um, you know, to the future of, you know, what what might happen with with co-management or, or, um, you know, stewardship of, of lands. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, look, it's a, it's a certainly a delicate subject it, and it is. Yeah. Good... And, and I apologize for, you know, probably aspects of it that I articulated incorrectly or maybe, you know, not with some sensitivity, but, uh, you know, I do use, uh, the hunter conservationist platform quite a bit to, um, do my part in reconciliation to raise broader issues about indigenous rights, um, especially around trapping in this country. We have, a, just irks me to no end, the anti-trapping, anti-fur campaigns and how, how hey. insensitive and tone deaf they are to indigenous values and indigenous connections to the land and the use of, of fur. Uh, in in their cultures, and you know, I'm always pointing that out to the point where I'm getting blocked by 
by some of the can because they just <laughs> won't answer the question. You know, it's like something simple. Hey, have you talking talked to First Nations about this? Yeah. And it's just like yeah. delete the comment and block you from their social media platform. And I'm like, geez, that's not the type of conversation this country needs, you know, after the Truth and Reconciliation Report and a nationwide effort to work with Indigenous communities at all levels for reconciliation, to, to try to right some of the wrongs of the past and, and find a better path for all of us. And that includes hunting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wildlife. And at the end of the day, if the wildlife are not on the land, there will be no hunting. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. Mark Hall, you're an uh, incredible individual. Always enjoy talking to you, my friend. Um, there's certainly a long road in front of the both of us in, in our chosen uh, endeavors. Well, so I'm, uh, I'm just so thankful um, that, you know, we connected years ago and uh, we've had the opportunity to get together on both of our platforms and speak and um, direct messages and hash issues around and, and that sort of stuff. And I just, uh, I treasure that. Uh, and I value that uh, a lot. And um, I just, yeah, we'll do everything I can to support your work here in Canada as well. Um, you're a much bigger platform globally than, you know, than, than we are. And I'll do everything to support um, providing perspectives, knowledge, information. No, 100%. Uh, whatever, so that you can be informed and on top of these issues in Canada as well. No, thank you, Mark. You're the man. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.